Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, January 26th, 2015, and I am coming to you from beautiful Boulder, Colorado. How you doing tonight, Brett? Hey, what'd you think of that song, America? I love that song. Do you? Yeah. And it's, uh, we picked it because, well, because we love it, but mainly because Bernie Sanders used it in a commercial that's this last week that is just, I think, the epitome of the political ad maker's art. I mean, it's really a beautiful thing. You can check it out on YouTube under Bernie Sanders' America. Yeah. That song was written about five or six years before I was born. And by the time I was exposed to it, it was... It was being forced through these horrible supermarket speakers, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I had this <laughs> really bad... I, I hated it, really. But I, as I've gotten older, I've realized what a brilliant song yeah. it is. And it really fits his campaign well, actually. Yeah. The one line where he's, she's sleeping, they're on a bus, and he's looking out over the fields, and he wants to tell her that, quote, I'm empty and I'm aching and I don't know why. And that has always wrecked me, that, yeah. that line. Anyway, yeah. the phenomena that we want to be talking about tonight is this explosive rise of Bernie Sanders in his presidential bid, uh, particularly in the last few weeks. And for those of you who aren't Americans or international listeners, uh, Bernie is uh, running against Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination for president. And he launched his campaign back in April as a 74-year-old, rumpled, grumpy, self-described old-school liberal socialist. And today, he has, in my opinion, included and transcended those qualities to transform himself into a real political animal. I mean, in the last few weeks, this with this starting really with the third debate, he's a, a, a real political populists taking on the system that, that he sees as being rigged against the people. And, you know, he's filling auditoriums throughout Iowa and New Hampshire, the first two primary states. He's built a grassroots movement reminiscent of Obama's juggernaut of 2008. And he has frontrunner Hillary Clinton running scared. Uh, he's beating her in New Hampshire at the moment, and they're basically in a tie in Iowa. And we'll, we'll know real soon. I think it's a week from tonight is the Iowa caucuses. But at any rate, there's a plausible scenario now where Bernie Sanders catches fire and becomes the Democratic nominee. The stranger things have happened. Not much stranger, but it's happened. Uh, and, you know, if it does, we have a 50-50 country here between the Republicans and Democrats. and any given election, one can beat the other. So there is a plausible scenario where he becomes the president of the United States. I don't think it's likely for reasons I'll get to in a minute, but whether or not this happens, at least at the moment, because we just can't know, what's already more interesting is how Bernie has succeeded at moving the ball in installing uh, a progressive worldview, uh, the green developmental level worldview into the American political scene. So we'll take a look at that in some detail in a few minutes. Uh, before we do, I, I, I want to give a shout out to Integral Life, my home site, for being the leading web portal in the Integral community, also the home of Integral Radio, 
For those of you who are listening live right now, that's where you're at. And I thank you for tuning in live. It's always nice to feel your presence in real time as I pontificate here. A special thank you to Corey DeVos. And um, we will have a special surprise from Integral Life for you at the end of the show tonight. So stay tuned for that. I like to point out when I see examples of integral consciousness arising in the culture. And so I'd like to recommend a show that I've been watching on PBS called First Peoples. It's a six-part series. And I think the show hits two big bullseyes in the integral world. First of all, it lays out a really interesting graphic narrative format of the evolution of early humanity and how we arose out of Africa 200,000 years ago and basically took over the world. And it presents the latest thinking that, you know, if you're like me, you read about this stuff. And, you know, the latest thinking is that humans lived side by side and mated with Neanderthals and Denisovians and Homo erectus and other early variants of the human lineage for thousands of years. And we still have those genes with us, and they've helped us survive and thrive. So it's just a fascinating story in and of itself. But what's also interesting, the second bullseye for First Peoples, it's called, it's not just the story itself, but how the story is told and how the science itself is advancing that the show is reporting on. And the first show, uh, pretty close to the beginning, they focus on the story of this Mexican anthropologist, Arturo Gonzalez, who got a lot of attention a few years ago for finding Eva de Najaron, the oldest skeleton ever found in the Americas, skeleton of a young girl over 13,000 years old. And they found her skeleton in an underwater cave in the Yucatan, a quarter mile down, uh, clearly a ritual burial. And so they tell the story of how, how Gonzalez explores these caves, and they're endless, you know. And he uses a most interesting technique. He does ceremony with a shaman, and he endeavors to enter the same spirit world that these early people did by taking a psychotropic drug that is traditional in that part of Mexico, extracted from the glands of a Mexican toad. And so this PBS documentary shows him dancing around, he's tripping, the shaman's playing these native instruments. And it's, first I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, this is PBS, what am I watching here? But they interview him after, and he says, you know, I am an anthropologist. I am a paleontologist. I'm very sure about the rational. I mean, he was a scientist through and through. But now I have a better understanding of why these early humans chose specific places to make their connection to the source. And, you know, apparently it works because he is, because of his find, one of the most celebrated scientists of his generation. So I thought that was really cool. And then just a, another quick moment in the show is later in the show, they um, talk about Kennewick Man, which is a controversial 9,000-year-old skeleton found about 20 years ago in uh, Washington State. And there's been a legal battle, there was, for quite a while, where the Native Americans demanded that the skeleton be reburied and not, you know, used for research. They called this, the, the um, skeleton the skeleton of the ancient one, of their 
original primal ancestor. And uh, so there was a court battle, and the court finally ruled that the scientists would be allowed to study the skeleton because they couldn't establish, the Native Americans couldn't establish a link. It was so old that they thought it could be Polynesian, could be Southeast Asian. So at any rate, this first people show takes us to Copenhagen, where this geneticist, and this is contemporary now, Erska Willerslev, is studying the DNA from Kennewick. And he invites the Umatilla tribal leaders from North America to Copenhagen and shows them what he's doing. And he dresses, they dress up in the clean room and, and you know, they're wearing their masks and, you know, underneath they're wearing their feathers and they're, you know, well, they're dressed mostly Western, but, you know, they look like Native Americans. And um, it's really cool. They, they watch the procedure and then he tells them that their study has confirmed that Kennewick Man is indeed a descendant of Native Americans, and that's important for their court battle. And they're really touched, and um, the, the one guy says, you know, we're, we tribes are still understanding what science is. You know, so apparently they'll get the remains of the remains of Kennewick Man, and science will be served, and everybody is happy, and I think this is what you call a good outcome here. But overall, I just want to, the, the point I want to make is, is that having a scientist enter the world space of tribal magenta people, on one hand, at the beginning of the show, and then at the end, inviting tribal people into the world of science in the laboratory, this has the fragrance of integral consciousness. You know, it, it includes both ends of the polarity. So, you know, on one side, we have science and reason, and on the other side, we have myth and faith and revelation, and both sides take each other seriously, not for the purpose of winning an argument, but uh, for the purpose of broadening their own view. So if this is what scientists are doing these days, it's certainly exciting to me. So check it out, PBS First Peoples, six um, episodes to that. All right, so let's turn our attention to our main topic tonight, and that is this Bernie Sanders phenomena. So Brett, why don't you play our Bernie clip? Here's the simple truth, that in America we have millions and millions of working people who are working hard but are not making enough money to put bread on the table or to take care of their kids, and that has got to end. Now the truth is that the billionaire class in corporate America and Wall Street and the corporate media have enormous, enormous power. And I would be fooling you if I suggested otherwise. They are very, very powerful people. And they control this country and have controlled this country for a very, very long time. But at the end of the day, while they have the money and while they have the power, we have something that they do not have. And that is, we have the people. And when people stand together, we can win. Wow, well said. So, quick quiz. What value system is associated with that kind of thinking? And the answer is green. The green postmodern system. And that's what Bernie Sanders is a really beautiful and authentic, committed uh, vehicle for that value system. And 
Of course, this is associated with liberal progressive politics. Uh, the markers of a green economy, for instance, which is mainly what he's talking about, are things like a strong safety net, highly subsidized, even centralized healthcare, education, welfare, um, you know, a lot of expensive programs, a lot of bigger government programs. So they're paid for with higher taxes and also some kinds of price controls and so forth. So far more activist government. And just in general, a move to a social contract that distributes more of the pie to more people. And, you know, it's not so concerned about growing the pie uh, as it is in the distribution of the pie and how workers are protected. So you have family leave and higher minimum wage, that sort of thing. And if you want to see an example of this in action, of course, you look to Northern Europe. Um, these are countries that have a center of gravity, green uh, economics. So evolutionarily, the arrival of the green worldview espoused by Bernie Sanders is right on schedule because we've been living mainly in the center of gravity of the orange economy. And we're beginning to see the downsides. We've been seeing, in fact, the downsides of that. And it's really interesting. This is where Integral really helps us to, you know, put a larger context around what's going on here. And if we look at the history of humanity through all of the levels of development that are charted on our levels of development chart, we see that the human project is about creating a more safe and prosperous world for more and more people. It's as simple as that. That's what every stage has managed to do. And you know, in, in often radically new ways of creating and distributing the wealth of the culture, hunter-gatherers to horticulture to agriculture to industrial and informational and so on. And we do that at each stage by working attention that is really just built in to the human condition. And this is the tension between the polarities of the individual and the collective. And so the idea here is that there are a couple irreducible dimensions of human reality, actually four, uh, using Ken's quadrant map. Uh, <clears throat> and on one hand, uh, there's a Jeff world, there's an individual world. So I have an individual consciousness, and that world is mine and mine alone. And you have your world and your body, and that is yours and yours alone. So there's that. And then... There's a dimension where I and you exist in relationship with each other and with all other beings. And we come together and in that way create a world space that is just as real and just as important to being human as is the individual world space. Now, the whole idea of an economy is a perfect expression of this because an economy is one thing, the economy that is made up of thousands or millions or the global economy, literally billions of individuals. And as we look at how that has evolved, we see that there's a natural oscillation as we move up the stages of development between an emphasis on the individual at one stage and an emphasis on the collective at the next, an individual and collective. And the pendulum swings, but of course the whole clock is moving forward. So the polarity is indestructible, 
but it is expressed in newly emergent ways, far more complex and capable ways uh, as the whole system evolves. I think one of the best explanations of this, particularly in the world of economics, is the book Memonomics, M-E-M-E-N-O-M-I-C-X, or M-E-M-E-N-O-M-I-C-S, Memonomics, The Next Generation Economic System, which was written by Saeed Dalabani. And I have a uh, an interview with him. I've mentioned his work before. But he points out a couple really interesting things that are, relate to how green is coming on uh, with Bernie and others uh, in this moment. First of all, he mentions that uh, economics is a lagging emergent. That is, it's the last thing in the culture to really move into a new stage of development. Generally, cultures move into to, um, a new stage with philosophy or art. That's sort of the leading edge. And laws and you know the sort of heavy systems that we all rely on, these are the ones you really don't want to screw up. You can screw up art. You can't screw up economies. People are you know conservative around that. So they want to protect. So he points out that we have a red economic system all the way up through the turn of the 20th century. And the red economic system is very individual oriented. It's um, the world of uh, empires and monarchies and robber barons, uh, again, right up into the turn of the 20th century. And this red economic system where there's, you know, there's not much government or the government is the system in the case of monarchies, uh, but taxes are low. There's very little regulation. This was true of the United States in the 1800s. And we ended up, of course, with the Gilded Age, the robber barons, and that all came to an end officially with the Great Depression. And at that point, Roosevelt ushered in the next stage of economic development, which is based on the traditional or amber worldview or value system. And Dalabani calls this the system of patriotic prosperity. And this is a more communal system. It's more like the hunter-gatherers, more egalitarian in, in a sense, but again, at a higher octave. So it represents or emphasizes uh, reverence, humility, duty, the idea that when everybody works hard and plays by the rules, they get to live a decent life. No free riders. Everybody, is, uh, their, their rewards are proportional to their contributions. And these are just the basic principles, but very communal, the amber traditional stage. And of course, this built the great middle class of the mid-20th century the World War II generation, higher taxes, higher wages, worker protections, uh, ascendancy of labor unions, the beginning of, of a safety net. And I would point out that although we talk about it being communal, it was still ethnocentric. Uh, it, it's, it's typical of traditional uh, sort of communities that they are, you know, everybody's, if you're in the in-group, you're in. But if you're not, you're not. And so we see lots of examples of people who are left out of this. One is African-Americans who, you know, Social Security was written so that um, household workers and, and, and most of the jobs that African-Americans held were left out. And, of course, there was the remnants of Jim Crow and so forth, and uh, civil rights hadn't really come online uh, until the 60s. So, you know, that was more of a move into um, later stages. So anyway, this... Traditionalist, 
amber economy served us well through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and then finally it exhausted itself, as everything does eventually, in the 70s with stagflation and the election of Ronald Reagan, which kicked in the next stage of economic development, or the orange modernists, which was skewed back to the individual again. So here, more liberty, lower taxes, busting the labor union, deregulation, increase in inequality, and yet a growing economy. And so this orange economy took off. It created a better world, you know. It did in terms of uh, the creation of wealth and even the distribution to wealth, even though it increased inequality, the poor, despite what people think in in America and the West in general, did not get poorer. They just didn't get rich to the the same degree as the rich did. And so anyway, you move up to, um, you know, go through Reagan, the first Bush term, two terms of Clinton, two terms of George W. Bush. And the orange economy takes us right up to the economic meltdown, the Great Recession of 2008, and the election of Barack Obama. Now, Obama, predictably, has set the pendulum swinging back towards the collective. And, you know, with Obamacare, higher taxes on the rich, although nothing like what we had seen in the previous communal era or traditionalism, where Uh, Tax rates got up into the high 80s and 90%. Uh, More activist government with with Obama, more regulation. So that is where we kind of are. But Obama has not been green enough for a lot of the people on the left. Uh, I'll make the case in a minute that even with economics, that Obama is operating more from an integral center of gravity. But Bernie's not. Bernie's green. And he's aiming to carry the ball further into green territory. He's running an unapologetic anti-Wall Street campaign. You heard him in our little clip. He's promising to break up the banks. He's going for a single-payer health care system. He's promising to raise taxes significantly to pay for it. He's unabashed about it. And you have to note that all of these things are going to be almost impossible to actually get through Congress. Because, you know, the Congress doesn't change like the presidency does. Senators are, are elected for six years. Um, representatives are often from gerrymandered districts that never change. And so, you know, you work with at the least a six-year window in American politics. But nevertheless, it doesn't stop Bernie from campaigning on these ideas. And, you know, it's really making the establishment Democrats nervous. We're talking people like Ezra Klein, who called his uh, health care plan puppies and rainbow health care plan. Uh, Paul Krugman in the New York Times said roughly the same things. These are un- unreasonable exp- uh, policies. Matthew Iglesias uh, just pointed out the sort of pie in the sky. And of course, Hillary's doing the same thing. And she, uh, after Bernie came out with his health care plan, she said, and I, I quote, she says, I don't want to overpromise. I don't want to come out with theories and concepts that may or may not be possible. What we need is a sensible, achievable agenda where we roll up our sleeves and work together. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, an, uh, an evolutionist sounds like instead of a revolutionist. It's very much like what Jeb Bush is saying, for instance, on the right. But it really doesn't light up the true believer's heart. <laughs> and actually, 
about an hour ago, I got a, uh, an email from a listener who sort of uh, belies that statement. It, I'll, I'll read it. I, I, I jotted it down. She said, Bernie's rants drive me up the wall. This is somebody who's not really going for the true believer. She says, Bernie's rants drive me up the wall. Enough with angry men spouting ridiculous, impossible things. Please, God, give us someone with warts and battle scars who understands the real world and can practice the art of the possible. Hillary. And thank you, Jennifer, for saying Says a lot. But Bernie's a true believer, you know, just like Ted Cruz is on the right. And one of the markers of any first-tier meme, and again, Bernie's coming from green, Ted Cruz is coming from amber, traditionalism. And so both of those are first-tier memes, and they are mono-perspectival. They have a point of view that is self-evidently true for them. Uh, Anybody who doesn't see it the way they do is defective. They're uh, maybe uh, malevolent. Uh, Maybe they're stupid. Maybe they've been co-opted. But they're not seeing things right. And so what we need is a great communicator, a great, brave, uncompromising leader who's clear and who can transmit the rightness of our arguments to people who don't don't understand it yet. And then we'll win the argument and everybody will be on our side and we can finally implement our agenda and set things right. And sometimes this happens, uh, but often it doesn't. Often that's the road to winning the nomination for your party only to go on to a spectacular defeat in the general election. Now, I can't predict that that's what would happen, especially this uh, election cycle, because, you know, we have both the left and the right very plausibly nominating true believers on both sides. So if we have a Trump versus Sanders or a Cruz versus Sanders, then, you know, one of them has to win and uh, then we'll get a true believer. Uh, But I don't think that's going to happen. I don't know, but generally when push comes to shove, people tend to get real about getting the most they can and not dying in a glorious defeat. And I noticed the other night when Bill Maher was uh, doing his show real time and he had Al Gore on. And uh, at one point, Bill stopped the, the interview and offered Al Gore a sincere, unironic apology for having voted for Ralph Nader in the 2000 election. Of course, Ralph Nader was the true believer back then for the left uh, and, and siphoned off a lot of support for Al Gore, who was the you know establishment evolutionary guy. And uh, you know Al Gore lost and gave us two terms of President George W. Bush. And uh, Democrats are very, very you know sensitive to that. But you know, regardless of what happens. Bernie will have made a tremendous contribution uh, because one of the things that um, Ken was teaching uh, last year or so when we were doing the What Next conference, actually a few years ago now, it really stuck with me. And it's this idea that thoughts are things, that the dimension, the interiors, the interior quadrants, the world of individual consciousness and collective culture, the upper left quadrant and the lower left quadrant, that these are real, that they actually have content and material. 
that add up. And that the more somebody thinks a thought, the more grooves in the cosmos are being cut so that other people can think those thoughts. And so sometimes the true believer, even the one who goes down in ignominious defeat, really serves a purpose for his worldview. And, you know, the classic example in America is Goldwater, who was the true believer in 1964. He went down to his blazing defeat. But 20 years later, Ronald Reagan, carrying the same conservative flag, basically, became president and went on to have eight very uh, consequential years. So Bernie will be bringing in and is bringing in very effectively. I mean, again, I think he's turned into a political thoroughbred. I mean, I'm just really impressed with Bernie. Bernie 3.0 here after debate number three versus Bernie 1.0 after the first debate, is really remarkable. God bless a 74-year-old man for, you know, carrying himself through that kind of a transformation. So just a a quick quote from the, the, the Lefty magazine here in America called The Nation. And I think they sum up what I'm talking about. They write, the Sanders revolution is not only possible, but necessary. The United States has become a plutocracy in which the middle class is melted away and the gap between the rich and the poor has reached gilded age extremes. Americans across the political spectrum are furious and Sanders rightly sees solutions in our country's proud democratic socialist tradition. Whether or not he goes on to win the democratic nomination, his run has already created a space for a more powerful progressive movement. And I think that is absolutely true. And that is the, you know, whether or not he's elected, that is the um, contribution of Bernie. And it's, uh, again, very, I think, inspiring to see it laid out there so effectively. I didn't think that was going to happen. A lot of people didn't. Okay, one more thought I want to share on this idea of the evolving economy is, so, okay, what is the integral economy? And what's that look like? And what do we see that might be happening that could possibly be in the category of of an integral economy. Saeed Dalabani refers to the integral economy as the functional flow economy. And, you know, you see, as you look through these patterns of history that I've been presenting that are on the levels of development chart, you notice one really super interesting thing, and that that is that each, each stage of development is dramatically shorter than the previous one, a fraction of the previous one in terms of length, which means that evolution is accelerating. Now, when you get to where we are now, particularly in the developed world, you have economic systems that are in place for just a few decades. I mean, the orange economy is only a few decades old. The amber economy is only a few decades old. You have a frothy edge where both sides of any polarity in this case, the individual and the collective, are online at the same time. And we have in our country a a red economy. It's generally underground and criminal, but we have it. It's there. We have an amber economy still going. We have an orange economy going. And we have the beginnings of a green economy coming on. And when you have that, this is just what naturally happens is that it calls for integral leadership, Because integral can see 
the power and potency of each stage of development. Because integral is not monoperspectival, integral is multi-perspectival. It can hold both the individual and the collective polarity at the same time in a larger space of consciousness. And you could use the best of everything that has come before, which is what we call it. You include and transcend. You uh, differentiate. You look at what's different about each of these worldviews, and then you integrate to get the best of each. And so an integral economy will have the best of the individual side of the polarity. That is initiative, creativity, the ability to experiment, to fail, to move forward. And an integral economy will also feature the, feature the characteristics of the collective side of the street. That is taking care of those who are less fortunate and providing a basic level of security for every citizen. And I think that's where we're going. And I don't think it'll be Bernie's politics. I think it'll be more like Obama's politics. I've never sensed that Obama was a doctrinaire green thinker. I know a lot of people disagree with me, but, you know, look at the record as president. He hasn't tried to break up the banks. He didn't go for a single-payer health system. Obamacare works with insurance companies that are regulated like utilities. He didn't try to reimpose anything like the high tax rates of the 50s and through the 70s. He's willing to use the military. And, you know, almost more important than anything, he doesn't have the animosity towards the other side that, you know, say Bernie Sanders does. And I think, the, the, you know, the, the, the dropping of fear and hatred is a um, in marker of integral thinking. So... We will see how this all goes. In uh, again, in a week, we're going to actually have people voting, which is also going to be really interesting on the right. And I don't want to get into the Trump Cruz thing because you know that's a whole other show, and it's really fascinating. And we'll get to it at some point. Uh, but let's just um, leave it there for now and uh, see how the the world turns when the voters actually start speaking. All right. I always love hearing from listeners and, uh, you know, people send me questions and comments and videos and things that they think I had to see or know. And I've been putting more and more of them up on uh, the website that Brett created for us over the last five or six months that I'm very proud of, very happy with. And it's dailyevolver.com. And, um, and we just posted this today. We got this sent to us by a listener, Tara Starr. And it's a video that's gotten, I guess, 30 million views on YouTube. And it's this Haka video, H-A-K-A, Haka video, which is, it's a wedding video that shows this really healthy integration of red warrior energy into what can sometimes be, a, you know, kind of a rote, empty, cultural ritual. And uh, it, the video really touched me, uh, not just because of the beauty of the particular moment that you see in the video, which is where the, uh, well, the groomsmen start it, but the whole audience, or at least a significant part of the audience, turns to the bride and groom and starts doing this beautiful haka dance. And again, it's, 
well, it's beautiful in a way. I mean, it's a violent foot stamping. They stick out their tongues. They slap their bodies. They make faces. It's really so interesting to look back at, at you know, a dance from this earlier stage of development, which has a similarity to what we would see. You know, this is from the magenta stage of development, the tribal stage of development, getting into red uh, 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 warrior stage. And it's very similar to what you would see a five, six, seven, eight-year-old do in, you know, in terms of making faces. And it's fantastic. But it really evokes this red tribal energy. And um, it's the second half that really wrecked me. And I, I, like Brett, I'd like, you have a clip, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is where um, the thing was really going. It only lasted for a couple minutes. And this is the last, it's less than 60 seconds. And you can just be able to hear it. You won't be able to see it, but you can still get the, the sort of vibe. And it's fantastic, especially when the groom and bride were swept up to taking part. got me even just now listening to it. Mm. And you have to think, how deeply loved and supported does this couple feel, you know, when mm. they're, you know, all their friends and family turn to them and, and do this kind of, you know, celebration. And, um, and on the other hand, is this an example of cultural appropriation? Because a lot of these people were white, Brett. Indeed. Yeah. And what if the haka was done by a bunch of Americans at the Integral Center, where there's not a native Maori to be found? <laughs> God help you. I know. Well, and we have done that. Um, and have to be culturally sensitive. We talked about that last time um, in the last episode of The Daily Evolver. I talked about political correctness. And, you know, there's more, I get, got a lot of questions and comments from people on that, and I'll take some of those up next, next week. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for, uh, for what, we're, um, what we're doing tonight, Brett. Uh, and we were going to close with a special um, contribution from Integral Life. And this is a segment from a new program that they're going to be releasing on Thursday. Uh, and it's called, Okay, I'm Dead. Now what? And it's a <laughs> integral program on death and dying that I'm really excited to, to listen to, actually. Uh, it's Andrew Holacek is the author, and he is a really terrific Tibetan Buddhist writer and thinker and teacher. And he's focused his you know, spiritual career on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And uh, so it's uh, six hours of dialogue between him and Ken and three hours of guided meditations. And uh, I'll just read a paragraph from the copy that Corey wrote about it. I think it's really well done here. So as he says, 
These aren't just practices for dying. They are also practices for living. They are practices to help you awaken more fully, to live more consciously, and to love more completely. It just so happens that the qualities of an, the qualities of an awakened life are the exact same qualities that will help ensure that your death will be as meaningful, painless, and free of regrets as it possibly can be. And that's how I want my death to be. All right, so Brett, we're going to play that for the next, what is it? like? That track is 30 minutes, and then after that, we're going to play a conversation between Terry Patton and Stephen Jenkins, uh, which also has to do with death. Yeah, and, and also while we're on the topic, um, the next Integral Living Room, which we're doing, it's, I think, the second weekend of November, and that's Diane Hamilton, Terry Patton, and me. We do it at the Integral Center. We've done, this will be the fifth one. The theme will be death and dying. So it seems to be a topic that's up. And I think it's really, really a, a delicious and important topic, uh, especially for those of us who are aging, but really everybody. So um, yeah, sit back if you're so inclined and listen to uh, Andrew Holacek and Ken and, uh, and then what's coming up with Terry Patton. And, um, and if you're done as I am, uh, we'll just say good night right now and we'll see you next week on the next edition of the Daily Evolver Live. Thanks, folks. Good night.